Hello and welcome again to the Wealth of Experience podcast. I'm your host, James Gruber. This week, we welcome special guest Andrew Mitchell, who's the founder and senior portfolio manager for Afia Asset Management. Recently, Afia celebrated the 10-year anniversary of its Opportunities Fund, which has returned more than 21% per annum since inception. Today, Andrew shares the lessons learned over the past decade, the key rules of investing, some of the fund's winners and losers, as well as where to find value now. On the show, we also have regular guest FirstLink's managing editor, Graham Hand, who goes through the recently released intergenerational report, the lack of meaningful policy response to that, and possible targets to address intergenerational equity. Our other regular guest, Peter Warns, the editor of Your Money Weekly, joins us for a wrap-up of the ASX reporting season, including the big winners and losers. Please note that any advice in this podcast is general in nature, and it may not be right for you, because we've not taken into consideration your personal financial needs. Let's bring in Graham Hand to discuss the intergenerational report and its implications. Graham, thanks for coming into the podcast again. Great to be on Wealth of Experience, James. Now, the federal government recently released another intergenerational report. What has this one got to say? Yeah, this one came quicker than you would normally expect. It's normally done each five years because it is a snapshot of 40 years hence. So things don't change that much in a year or two. But when Treasurer Jim Chalmers um, got the position, he asked for one only a couple of years after the previous one. So we do have one in 2023, having had the previous one in uh, 2021, normally every five years. And he said that he wanted this to sort of frame a policy agenda. Um, And we'll come back to whether um, there's any signs that that's that's happening. Um, But look, what are some of the main points, well, you know, it's a, it's a long document. We can't uh, discuss it all. I think the, the, the headline is that the big five areas of expenditure are health, aged care, the NDIS, defense, and interest payments on, on debt, which at the moment are only one-third of the federal budget but will become one-half of the budget. So, you know, those, those five are areas where the government's really struggling to control the expenditure. And a couple of the demographics uh, I found um, really um, revealing. Um, if you think about, we, are, we all know about the aging population and the, the, the people living longer, but the number of Australians aged over 65 will double the current proportion and, and reach 9 million, right? That's a, that's a lot of people like uh, me who are... Um, you know, enjoying the benefits of superannuation and triple the number of people who are over the age of, of uh, 85. And um, so, you know, a combination of uh, life expectancy and, um, you know, pe- people just living longer. And a couple of numbers, the consequence of that, the good, good news is that the age pension is expected to fall 
from 2.3% of GDP to only 2% of GDP due to the rise of, of superannuation, which, which goes up as a cost of the budget by a similar amount. And I'll just finish with two um, numbers finally, because I know I'm just talking a lot of numbers here. Um, even 40 years from now, so in 2062, there's still an expectation that something like 60% of the population will be on some form of the age pension, but far more people will be just collecting a part um, age pension. Um, and as far as that population is concerned, it's 2062, 40 million people, right? There's, there's 25 million at the moment, so that's 15 million people. And, uh, you know, they, they all, all them, nearly all of them will want to live in the, the capital cities very near a beach. So heaven knows how we're going to find the, the, the carers and the transport and the education to look after 40 million people, but that's the outlook at the moment. Zooming back from the numbers, Graham, it does suggest this report that expenditures are going to go up, especially for older people, and we're going to have to fund that, and that's where the challenges lie. Is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. Uh, and, you know, so one of the big intergenerational issues here, you know, where is the money coming from? And the outlook at the moment is that 60% of the revenue will come just from personal income tax. And, you know, when you consider then you're talking about, you know, a, an aging population, who's going to be paying the personal income tax 30 and 40 years from now? Well, it will be younger workers. And so you have this so-called dependency ratio where there are fewer workers in future to the number of people who are retired. And so the big, the big picture issue from this is how will the tax mix be able to change away from this reliance on personal income? Because if your personal income keeps going up, that's less incentive to work. And then you get into sort of productivity issues, you know, where people say, well, you know, half my money goes to the government. I can't be bothered working anymore. Um, so that, that's the one of the, the big challenges that this throws up. We'll get into that a bit more later. First, though, the government made a big deal about the report and the challenges it highlights, yet it hasn't really announced anything to help deal with some of the problems. Yeah, I think that's a spot-on observation. And when I was um, writing about this in First Links, I looked at two recent speeches from you know the two most important politicians in the in the country. One was from uh, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese at the Labour Party National Congress. So he s effectively told the delegates, and remember, this is the the Labour delegates, lots of union officials, lots of state governments in the in the room say, saying there's no point having the right policies and not being in government. And, you know, so he was making uh, statements uh, like, you know, there's a difference between laying the foundation and finishing the build. And in other words, he, he didn't want to bring out the policies now if they were unpopular and they lost the vote. What's the point of, of that? And I love this one. He says different, there's a difference between a moment of progress and a lifetime of opportunity. He 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 wants the Labour government to be a, a multi-term government. 
But then the second speech was that uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers gave to the press club. And if you'd have read that, you would have thought the changes are imminent. Uh, he, to quote him, he, uh, he says that um, around 40% of the increase in spending outlined in the intergenerational report is due to us getting older. Um, and we are at this moment, which he called a generational fork in the road, um, where we can shape our future and turn the turbulent 20s. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he means 2020s, not the 1920s, <laughs> the 2020s, um, into a defining decade. So, I mean, it's it's already 2023. There's There's no defining policy on the table that I've seen, and he wants it to be a defining decade. So um, you have this uh, sort of tension, I, I think. He, would, he may want to do more, but as we saw in the 20, 2019 election, when um, Bill Shorten as the opposition leader uh, and Chris Bowen as shadow treasurer came up with a couple of policies, particularly the one on franking credit, which proved to be unpopular contributed to Labour not winning that election, the miracle election of, for Scott Morrison. And the lesson is that Labour has learned from that is, um, yeah, you can have a policy uh, platform, but it's dangerous to implement it. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to say that the shadow of Shorten is in, in the background of this, and it, yeah. and, and it does sort of give, give a light to the different wings of the Labour Party and the tensions there. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of fascinating when you read through what happened at that Labour Party conference. They they agreed certain policies with no plan to implement them. <laughs> so, you know, when I mean, Albo has a, a favourite saying, which he's using a lot lately, which is, if not now, when? Um, and you could ask that. It's never going to be a good time to do it. True. Now, I might be too cynical in thinking that the report is really just paving the way for future tax hikes in the years and decades ahead. Uh, look, it is probably laying the foundation for people to um, to talk about various uh, tax ar arrangements at the moment. Um, and so, when I was sort of writing for First Links, I was thinking, well, what are the the ways that Australians avoid paying tax, and I mean it's almost a national past pastime. And I'd been reading this fantastic book called called Moneyland, um, which is about how um, tax is um, evaded or avoided by wealthy people all over the world. A fantastic um, book ab about your know, bearer bonds and the Cayman Islands and and um, Ukraine and Russia and oligarchs and and you know a, a fascinating story not only about tax avoidance but the way the global system works and then I thought well if I went to see a financial advisor in Australia I actually don't think that they would come up with any of these sort of dodgy tax schemes about sticking my money in offshore what what they all have in their kit bag is a bunch of common things that we know, um, which are all about sort of negative gearing, um, family trusts, franking credits, 
um, no inheritance tax, all all of these things that um, Australians commonly use to avoid tax, avoid perfectly legal. Per- exactly, perfectly legal. So the definition there is avoid is legal and evade is not. Um, so I'm deliberately using the the word avoid. Um, I just get the feeling that Kerry Packer's looking down on us <laughs> with a big smile on his face right now. Yeah, the very, very uh, famous uh, Kerry Packer telling a terrified bunch of of politicians that if you if you're paying more tax, that you're an idiot because the government's not using it very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to answer your question more directly, um, you know, what are potential targets? Well. You know, if you're really talking 20, 30, 40 years, then, um, you know, maybe that gets into enough time for a government to start to have a sort of GST type of converse- conversation where you, you do, um, eventually bring the electorate with you and say this is necessary. And so, you know, a, a couple of things which you would say are sacred cows, the, the tax-free status of the family home and the fact that it doesn't it doesn't um, affect uh, age pension qualification. Well, what about a cap on that? I mean, is is it right that that should be uh, if you've got a ten or twenty million dollar home? And I think people would probably come along and say, look, let's cap that at you know X million or or something. So you know, th- there's 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 one. Um, that could be a way of framing future policy, really, and it comes from the recent moves with superannuation, right, where yeah. you cap certain things and, in essence, you're taxing the wealthy, and that kind of goes down well, doesn't it? Well, Not with the wealthy, of course. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know. I mean, you do have this issue that people will say, wait a minute, I, <clears throat> I, I saved for my future using the rules as they exist and now you're changing exactly. them. So there's one argument. But the other argument is, you know, perhaps when the rules were devised, we didn't really realize that someone would end up with $10 million in superannuation. So, you know, those rules have been tightened. And if you look at the one that you're referring to, so the extra 15% tax on superannuation balance is over $3 million. Um, I... I think that one will go ahead. There's a lot of objections uh, to it, but there's not so much of an outcry that it will be event. It'll just become part of what you do in managing your superannuation, much like the introduction of the transfer balance cap, which at the time there were some objections to. But that's another way that superannuation has been restricted. So I think you know we we've got this. Um, is the scope to do that on the family home? And I, I think the other one that's vulnerable is that in Australia, we don't have what is very common in other countries, and that's an inheritance tax. And, you know, it, you get into certain sort of moral and ethical issues here, but is it is it right that um, someone is wealthy because their parents are wealthy? Yeah, okay, um, you know, the family, multi-generations and things, but you know, is there a case for a 5% or 10% wealth tax over $5 million, you know, something like that? So those sorts of, of um, changes, which, which uh, policies, you know, f- that they have in other countries, I would imagine that over the next, what are we talking about, 10, 20 years, a whole bunch of these will be uh, raised and, and unless they 
there's an experience that, you know, what we've, as we've talked about with franking credits, you know, they, they make it up. What we haven't talked about and what gets lost in the mix are younger people. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, so I've written this article on 10 ways to avoid tax. And when you actually look at them, you think there's a lot of this um, is about people who've made money hanging on to it. Um, you know, so large superannuation balances, pension uh, free, no inheritance tax, um, the way franking credits works and, you know, the the 30 cents in the dollar marginal tax rate will now be the tax rate for someone earning up to $200,000. And the way franking credits work, if, if you if you're in that marginal tax bracket and you get a fully franked dividend, you don't pay any more tax. And so you clearly get a younger generation saying, well, wait a minute, I just I just earn a salary, right? I just earn my 50, 70, 100 grand a year. I pay tax on that. I don't, I haven't been able to buy the tax-free family home. I am, I'm, I'm, 30 or 40 years off the tax-free um, pension. So, you know, this is all sort of falling falling down to me. And and this is some of, you know, it's called the intergenerational report. And, um, yeah, you know, I'm, there's, I, I don't see mutiny on the streets um, because, of course, the younger generation will inherit the wealth of the of their parents. And you've got this multi-billion dollar wealth transfer uh, coming up. And in fact, a lot of young people wanted the franking credit proposal retained because that was financing their parents' retirement. Okay? If they're lucky enough. If they're lucky enough, exactly. So it's the people who don't have that sort of inherited wealth um, who are being left behind by these changes. And the other thing that's neglected is how do we get economic growth up to really pay for all of this. I mean, that would be the easiest way to pay for all of these increased expenditures. Yeah, so you're talking about a bigger pie, not just di <laughs> dividing up the, yes, up the pie. That, that would be good. Yeah. Well, uh, indeed, and you know, the, what we, two things that we haven't talked about um, uh, in the sort of expenditure side of the budget is climate change and defence. And, you know, Jim Chalmers has used the intergeneration report to say that the the cost of adjusting to climate change is you know four hundred billion dollars, and then you know there's this we know that the cost of the six submarines um, over the life of the submarines is three hundred and sixty billion dollars, and you know pretty soon we're going to get some serious numbers on the table here. Um, and yeah, the, the sort of discussion on productivity—you know, productivity is you know changing the tax system, ma making um, things, um, making the economy more efficient, and productivity has been declining. And so, yeah, the, there is an important uh, policy side of making the pie bigger. Yeah. That's for another podcast, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Graham. Yeah, James, it's been great to be back on the podcast. Let's now bring in our other regular guest, the editor of Morningstar's Your Money Weekly newsletter, Peter Warns, to give us the highs and lows of the recent ASX reporting season. 
Peter, welcome again to the podcast. Thank you very much, James. It's lovely to hear your dulcet tones again. (laughs) And yours too. Peter, another ASX reporting season is done and dusted. What did the results look like in aggregate? Well, in aggregate, I guess, um, you know, toting up the dollars and cents, um, they probably were, I haven't done the numbers, but they probably about the same as they were this time last year. I mean, there's a little bit of growth um, out there, but there's also been some um, some companies that have struggled. But overall, in terms of um, in terms of the reporting season, rather than getting into the you know that that the, the big big picture of aggregate, um, it, it's been it's it's really been reasonable in in my my uh, estimation. Um, given that we knew what we were facing, we were facing uh, you know, slowing economic growth. Uh, from the from the the get go, if you like, from July of last year, the economic growth has slowed. Um, inflation has risen. Um, interest rates have are up sharply, and so we got to the halfway mark, and and things were still reasonably okay because consumer demand was holding up in the first half. Uh, buoyed by increasing um, uh, fiscal uh, stimulus and, and also um, a very, very strong labour market. And so household income was relatively protected. And so that that helped the first half. As we rolled into the second half, um, it got a little bit, you know, nastier, if you like. The, 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 the henny headwinds uh, that were there started to stiffen. And um, the second half was obviously worse than the first half. But overall, given that we we knew that that kind of environment was around us and 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 and, and happening, the, the results were, you know, okay. It it was the guidance that has 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 been the issue. I was going to mention that in terms of earnings cuts, it's more going forwards that that seems to be the issue. What were some of the reasons behind those cuts? Yeah, well, you know, the two eyes, inflation and interest rates. I mean, the, the 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 impact that they had and us continuing to have on corporate operating costs, whether they whether the infl- the inflation is from input costs, but also wages costs, and then you have overlaying that substantially higher interest expense, then whilst the Top line might be okay. The the uh, the bottom line is suffering because of the impact of the two eyes, if you like, and um, and the outlook is is not all that flash. The guidance for twenty twenty four has been is seeing uh, earnings estimates chopped left, right, and centre, um, and and that's because probably the eye, the interest rate. Expense isn't going to come down because I don't think interest rates are going to fall sharply between now and 2024, June of 2024. Inflation, the inflation rate will ease, but the core rate will still be very sticky and therefore, uh, and, and the lag effect, if you like, of these interest rate hikes is going to continue to impact on household consumption. So it's not a very rosy picture out there going forward, and that's why guidance 
has uh, accordingly been very, very cautious and um, and resulted in a number of all meant more uh, uh, cuts or re- re- reduced uh, uh, earnings outlooks than um, than increases. Who are the winners and losers in terms of sectors? Yeah, interesting, James. I mean, it really isn't kind of a sector thing. I mean, it just what 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 twenty twenty three has done is, if you like, separated the wheat from the chaff. Uh, the the good the well managed well financed um, companies have still done relatively well. The poor have have done what do you think would would happen in a in in that circumstance? So uh, sector wise, I guess if you look and say okay, well the banks did okay. I mean they, they their top lines did very very well because their um, net interest income was up and that was driven by higher Net interest or interest received because the because of the interest rate hikes, um, the net interest margins were okay, but they're also going to be under pressure going forward, um, and the credit growth was rich, was uh, declining, and it will and will also be under some pressure going forward. So, but the banks were okay. If you look at insurance companies, they were okay as well because again, why? Increased premiums at double digit, so the top line's doing what it's you know it's driving it, driving it, um, and they're trying to get costs out of it. Yes, there's been the but the claims seem to have, have have peeled back a little bit, and so insurance companies uh, um, didn't did relatively well um, in the in the um, consumer sector. Strangely enough, the um, the consumer sector held together a bit better than uh, what was previously uh, expected, uh, and uh, and going forward, I think you'll find that um, again discretionary will come under some pressure. Um, the necessities, the supermarkets will go okay. The discount department stores will find you know support, um, and, uh, and and interestingly, um, the the buildings, the uh, building materials. Uh, also did, as a sector did well, you saw both Borel and James Hardy and GWA, you know, that uh, manufactures what you sit on when you go to the little room. Uh, that, they did, did okay because, again, there's a lot of work out there, There's whether it's infrastructure or residential or what have you, and they did well of those that uh, Adbry did disappoint because if you cut the dividend or have no dividend, that's you are going to get a smack on the bottom. So, yeah, that, you know, that from the sectors, they're the, probably the sectors that did okay. It was more kind of, as you said, individual companies within sectors that did better. Of the blue chips, which ones positively surprised and which ones disappointed in your view? Yeah, James, I mean, if you look at the the uh, the ASX top 50, which is like, if you that's the classification of blue chips, just running down the list, um, car sales did very well. I mean, and think about what they did well. There was no new vehicles coming out, and everyone and the and the second-hand vehicle market went crazy, and that's why they did well. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure all that out, but their business model is very, very good, and they're doing things outside uh, that just just outside the automotive industry as well um, in the US, in particular. Koshlia did well. Goodman a good a good result and did well. 
James Hardy more so on the guidance than, than their actual results. But again, it's guidance. It's to put the package together. Um, and um, I think we, and West Farmers did, did well. I mean, uh, th th they're the ones that stood out to me in terms of the, um, what we would classify as the blue chips. All right. Now that the earnings cuts have come through, the ASX 200's around its long-term average PE of 15 times. Is that attractive in your view? $64 question. My gut feel is um, it's fairly valued on what how we see the market um, and in terms of our, you know, mid-cycle uh, expectations. In fact, you know, we uh, increased our fair values on uh, a, a, well, it would be probably 30 or 40 stocks, um, but we only cut cut about 15, um, but mostly the increases were time value of money when, you know, your, your models are being rolled over. Um, there were a couple of, um, you know, instances where that wasn't the case. And it was just good. It was just, you know, a better, better result. But I, I would think that the market, you've seen now the market hasn't gone anywhere, basically point to point, if you like, for over three years it's probably not going to do much in the next year either. So it would seem that you're relying on the dividends for your for your income. Oh, well, absolutely. I would think that – don't think you're going to get anything like double-digit uh, total shareholder returns uh, between now and this time next year. I think that's um, – you know, would be very optimistic. Uh, we the economic outlook is is not all that flash, and you saw what uh, uh, the uh, the uh, Reserve Bank Governor Elect said um, on what she thinks about uh, uh, in energy prices uh, and and the transition of to of to to zero or. Um, net zero yeah, emissions, net yeah, zero it's emissions. kind of backed up what you were, uh, you've been saying for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's uh, been listening she's, to you, Peter. Well, she she's on the right track, and and Chris Bowen's he's in he's in you know la la land, and so th these things are going to have to play out, and so interest rates will come down sometime next year, um, and that will that will reflect how bad the economy is going, not how well it's going. All right, that's a great wrap of the reporting season. Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks a lot, James. Sorry I can't be more uh, upbeat, but uh, it, I'm a realist, as you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Morning Star's Peter warns there. And it's time to welcome this week's special guest, Andrew Mitchell, the founder and senior portfolio manager of Afia Asset Management. Andrew's here to share some key lessons he's learned managing the Afir Opportunities Fund, which recently celebrated its 10-year anniversary. Interviewing Andrew will be FirstLink's Graham Hand. Graham, take it away. Andrew, welcome to Wealth of Experience. Thanks very much for having me, Graham. Look, you recently um, went through your first full 10 financial years of uh, the Afir Opportunities Fund. And obviously, you were managing money before that as well. So what are some of the 
biggest lessons of the last 10 years? Look, I think the lessons you get constantly reminded is that the market doesn't go up in a straight line as you as a share, as a fund manager don't have your performance and uh, it doesn't go up in a straight line either and it, and it, and it you know, moves around with the market. Yeah. And we've had years along the way where we've done very well and then we've had years where we haven't done as well. Uh, and that's just how the market works. Um, from my perspective, I invest all my personal money in the fund. Yep. And I've learned over time not to try and time the market, to just be a consistent investor. And that, that original fund that you spoke about then, the, the Ophir Opportunities Fund, uh, it's done 21% per annum for you know, 10, 11, 11 years or 10 financial years. Um, and it hasn't been all beer and Skittles along the way, but the trend line has actually stayed remarkably similar but you've had a lot of volatility as we've obviously gone through in the last the last uh well, 12 18 months and it's it's really just staying the course as an investor sticking to your process uh and you know not getting worried out of positions that you believe in likewise but i guess investors listening in not getting worried out of the market because capitalism works you know it, it yeah. runs and it keeps winning do you feel you've been able to convince your investors to to understand that, to stay the journey with you? Yeah, we, I think we've been very successful So in doing that because we do have a track record from our previous employer that was five years and that included the GFC and that, it's very handy to point to how we performed during the GFC and as I said, the last 10 years, we haven't gone up in a straight line and we can show how that, you know, we've had these volatile times and we have lost a few people along the way but once you've got that track record and people see, hey, you know, you do have these 20% pullbacks, we fell, uh, the fund we were running at our previous employer fell 50% or so during the GFC. As the market did. As, yeah, we did a bit worse than the market. But then okay. we, when, I, when I started there running this fund, it was in, I think, September of 2007. So it was a complete baptism of fire. Went straight into <laughs> Welcome the- Welcome to the market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and fell- you know, being investing in small caps, we fell a bit more than the market. But then when we left, the fund was up 80% after five years. So if you went to sleep or in a coma for five years, you'd woke up, you'd be very happy with your return. From the bottom, that was the darkest time um, in the market, sort of March 8, 2009. The fund was up massively to get to that plus 80. I think it's like 160 or 200% or whatever it is. Um, and so when you can point people to the, that period of time uh, and show that sort of uh, this is all a part of a, a normal market, I think it helps people. And when investors come into our fund, and they tend to hear about us in good times. You know, when you've done a 70, 80% sort of year, they, they all, yeah. the phone's ringing off the hook. That you're featured on some league table or something like that. Exactly. You need to um, anchor people's expectations and make them realistic. And I know- I've had a few conversations with people who are coming in and they have unrealistic expectations and, and you say, hey, just know that every seven or eight years there's a recession. We're in small caps. The price of admission is volatility to the downside in a recession. Um, just remember we had this conversation because you, you, you will need to be strong enough to hold on if there's a 50% fall because if you don't, um, you're going to miss the, the bigger – the bigger game uh, is sort of riding the share market over a long period of time. 
So in that time, let's say at a fear, the last 10 years, is there a stock that stands out in your mind that you think you identified before the market did and did well, but also another one that you've perhaps been disappointed in? Oh, there's plenty like on, <laughs> bo- on both sides. Um, the ones that uh, obviously people would would remember very well as Afterpay. We got into that when it was a couple of dollars. And the the thing about Afterpay when we speak about it, we we uh, invested very shortly after the IPO. Um, and to give background, the work we did was we were speaking to retailers and they were telling us, unlisted retailers, that it was really driving their uh, online sales and the customers loved it and it was changing the behaviour. And we said, right, we're on to something. Did we think that this was going to be a 30, 40 bagger? As people think, how did you, how did you spot this 50 bagger? It, it, we didn't. Um, we thought we were going to make two, three times our money and you know, this was going to be very good. Along the journey, the key thing with Afterpay was actually not not selling it. And it, we sold it all the way, so it was like a 5% position all the way, but not selling it to zero because there were many times mm. to be worried out of it. So you had to actually believe in your central uh, thesis to the company and not be worried out because there were people hate stocks that are going up because they don't own them, so they, they want to fling mud. So I think that was a good one to get early, to get early on, and obviously everyone knows that. Um, and there's been plenty that haven't gone well. Uh, one that's happening right at the moment, it's a smaller weight in our portfolio, but is a company called Omni Bridgeway. So it's a litigation funder, um, which means that, uh, let's say, a class action costs a lot of money for, for lawyers. Uh, they need to fund it. And this is sort of a team of lawyers that go and say, okay, we'll give you some funding so you can fund this class action. But um, the quid pro quo is we get some uh, return on the other side. The problem with this business is the duration that mm. uh, the way the court system works, it, things get pushed out, judges take a long time to mm. make judgments and then there's appeals and uh, we've been waiting for the cash flow to come and right. I think the market's just absolute, just has lost all confidence right. and we've seen the company fall uh, significantly and you know, it hurts when you're watching a company down 3%, 4% mm. uh, a day. So we certainly don't get them all right and you Definitely, they they seem to hurt a lot more than the ones that you uh, that are going well. Yeah, good for you. I mean, that reminds me of the the Buffett Munger thing of the 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 way the market transfers money from the impatient to the patient, and that sounds like you need to be super patient. No, well that that's right. Um, we'll trade around the edges in these companies, so it's not a big, it's not a huge position for us. At once upon a time, it was a bigger position, but yeah, that's one of our favourite quotes and one that we talk to your question before about um, our, pay, our, our investors sticking around. Uh, and yes, they are. We're in, we're in uh, inflows in terms of the fund that's, that's open. Um, but that's one of my key quotes to pe- people is just remember the market transfers money from the impatient yeah. to the patient. <laughs> that's right. As someone who is uh, annoyingly impatient, I, I understand that, that saying completely. Look, you, you recently wrote an article in First Links, uh, Andrew, with the provocative title that stocks are less risky than bonds in, in the long run. In the long run, I know you emphasised that. Um, so what's your thesis there? Oh, well, y- you hit the nail on the head. Um, it is a provocative title because we want people to read it, so you have to um, give something that, that challenges the status quo. But what we're really saying, and as you pointed out, in the long run, that a lot of people, well, the, the status quo is that uh, bonds are less risky 
than equities. Now, we all know that there's the equity risk premium and you, you after after inflation, you should be making about 7% return a year in equities. But as we said, the price of admission is the volatility. Hmm. But the interesting thing is it really depends on the time frame that you're looking at equities versus bonds. So on a one-year basis, the volatility or the standard deviation, or another way we measure it is uh, the peak to trough, um, on a one-year basis, equities are far more uh, risky than bonds. But as you go out 10 years, 20 years, and then finally 30 years, you have a look at that peak to trough and you have a look at the uh, standard deviation, and there's actually less risk in equities at a 30-year. At about 20 years, it's about the same. So it's all, to quote Warren Buffett again, it's time in the market, that if you have that long duration that you look at equities, they actually become less equity, uh, less, uh, less risky. Yeah. Um, it's just about the time frame. Um, and if you're a day trader, then, yeah, they're going to be a lot riskier than bonds. But if you take a long-time approach... It works in your favour. Yeah, and I think your, the articles you've written in the past, you included a chart um, which shows the number of times you would l- lose holding for those various periods. And it's, it's pretty persuasive if, you, if you've got the nerve to hang in there. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, not all of us have 30 years left in our life, so it's, uh, maybe you're, maybe you're uh, investing for the next generation. But, yeah, and that's the... The, the actual whole approach that Stephen and I have taken to running Ophir is we've been investing right from day one. All the money that we make in Ophir, other than the house we own or the houses we own, um, has been going into the funds. We're trying to really take a long-term approach and just, uh, what is it, the eighth wonder of the world, compound compound interest or compounding, uh, just really compound those those returns and the risk as we show in that, that chart, which we put on far, first links. As you go further out, the, the line actually looks smoother and smoother in terms of the uh, performance. And you mentioned earlier with uh, Afterpay, but have, have you got a, a, a stock that you think is not, not only one that you're keen on, but you think it's got ca- characteristics that are particularly resilient for a difficult market? You know, there's all this feeling about is a recession coming? Um, and one that you might think it's not going to shoot the lights out, but it, it's got such a such a, a great business that you think the resilience is there. Yeah. Um, well, we hope we've got we've got uh, quite a few of those businesses because we're generally not investing in cyclical companies. So they're like most companies have a an element of cyclicality to them. Um, Omni Bridgeway is obviously a classic one, a litigation funder. You don't get uh, you don't get it's all it's almost counter to the market. People want to sue people in terms of a re- in times of a recession, uh, and the court system works in its usual way. Uh, one that hasn't gone well for us recently, but uh, since we've owned it, has done tremendously well. Is a company called Transmedic. So this is a um, business uh, listed in the US. It's uh, Three four billion dollar Aussie market cap company that's involved involved in organ transplants, specifically uh, removal, storage, and transportation of hearts, lungs, and livers used for organs. And they, what their technology enables them to do is to keep the heart beating outside of a human body, rather than 
competing against an Esky, uh, a Yeti Esky. There are some small competitors that don't have much market share, but this business, is, as we show with, with data, is actually growing the number of organ transplants that occur in the US. So I think um, from 2005 to 2020, the amount of heart, lung, liver transplants went from 10,000 to 15,000. So you had 5,000 organs uh, extra grow in the US. Uh, in the last three years, it's gone um, from 15,000 to we think it will probably be about 19,000 this year, so 4,000 extra. That's really accounted for by transmedics, and they're a service. So they make doctors' lives easier. Mm. It's, it's similar to afterpay in a sense that when you speak to everyone in the value chain, everyone wants it to succeed because doctors aren't waking up at 3 a.m. and flying across America to take out an organ. Transmedics does that. Right. Um, and hospitals like it because they make a lot of money and insurers like it because they save money. So this business is marching to its own beat. It's growing market share in a growing industry. And in fact, it's growing the industry. And that's why we think it's similar to Afterpay. So in some senses, uh, to your question, what's a resilient business? Well, you want one that's in a resilient industry that's growing market share. And that has those um, elements. And the added element, which is rarer. You see, to, see it in like a ResMed and an Afterpay, but it's quite rare. It's actually growing an industry itself that's been around for a long time. Yeah. So, Andrew, I want to ask you a specific question about your listed investment company. But before I do that, can you just explain what your range of funds are and oh, okay. you know what's, what's open at the moment? Yeah. So, we have the Ophir Opportunities Fund. That is our original fund. It's been going for since uh, August of 2012. And as I said before, it's done uh, 21% after fees per annum. It's the number one ranked fund out of all funds since its inception. I think it's it's number one uh, in terms of on a five-year basis, long-only fund as well. So it's done very well. That's our original fund, an Aussie small cap fund, long-only. Then we have uh, OPH, which is the Aussie high conviction fund. There's about a 50% overlap with that small cap fund. Uh, that's listed, trades under ticker OPH. It has less stocks, so you think 30 stocks versus the 40 in the Ophir Opportunities. Then we have two global funds. So the Global Opportunities Fund, uh, it's done, I think, 13 14 15% per annum for almost five years uh, after fees and has beaten the benchmark, I think, these aren't exact numbers, by about 6% per annum since it started, maybe a bit more. Um and that fund is closed, but the uh, Global High Conviction Fund is open. Now, that fund has an 80% overlap with the Global Opportunities Fund. And so this is a global small cap fund. The average size of a company is about 5 billion Aussie market cap, um, and it invests in the Western world. So the US is about two-thirds of the index, and so two-thirds of the fund is the US. It's got English stocks, European, Scandinavian stocks, and Canadian, and you know, every now and again, a Canadian stock in it as well. Okay. And it's got about 30, 30 companies where the Global Opportunities Fund has 40 companies. So they're the four funds. They're the funds. So just looking at OPH, because obviously we, we've got a lot of um, people who like to buy listed investment companies, easy to execute on the exchange, which no doubt why you've got OPH there. Um, if if I look at it, it was it was launched in 2015. If I look at its full history, most of that time 
It's at a premium to NTA. It's currently at a discount. Last time I looked, about 12%. Yep. Um, why do you think that changed from premium to discount and what, what can you do to remove it? The the premium versus discount is is very interesting because I just see opportunity. I see everyone's fearful of the premium discount. Uh, Stephen and myself have been investing since January. Uh, we were investing a couple of weeks ago. We bought hundreds of thousands of dollars worth each. Um, it's simple. Fear and greed. When the market is greedy, asset prices are inflated. So you go back to 2021, we're trading at a 20% premium. There were some extraordinary are, premiums there. But when, when asset prices go up, you know, when the share market rocketed uh, in that 20, 2020, 2021, you trade on these big premiums. When the taxi driver is talking about the share market, asset prices are high, and then you get the cherry on top, which is the premium. But the flip side to that is when the market's fearful, uh, you trade at a discount. And you think about it. What's also happening at that time? Well, asset prices are depressed. So for Stephen and I, who like to think longer term, this is a huge opportunity for us and hence why we're investing because we're saying, well, we can buy a dollar in our fund for 90 cents. I can't promise this to your listeners, but we think that we'll generate good returns in the future and when everyone's piling back into the share market and your Uber driver's talking about the shares that they own, um, the share market's rocketing, then that's when we trade in a premium because everyone's coming back. And the experience during COVID was interesting. So we went from uh, trading around par to a 15% discount in COVID. If you invested then in the, in the shares, and we said on the webinar, what we did at the time of like March 20, uh, 2020, this is a great time to invest. If you invested then, you would have made 125% in the next 15, 16 months. But the net asset value only went up 65%, just showing how that all works. So that's what we really like about the discount. But we uh, discount versus the premium, but we owe it to our investors to try and narrow that as much as we can. So we have several mechanisms. One, we tell everyone now when we're uh, when we're investing. So on our webinars and the likes, which are publicly available, you can um, hear when we're investing, and that's been recently. Um, two, we need to make sure the communication is is always up, and so people understand how we're seeing the world. And it's not just communicating via uh, a monthly letter or a quarterly letter. We we do all other things. We're on LinkedIn podcast or whatever it is, but give lots of mediums to communicate how we see this as an opportunity. And then once you've sort of exhausted communication, uh, the last one we have, which we've done before, is put it on the put the buyback on. Mm-hmm. And so if you can buy a dollar for fifteen uh, for eighty five cents, then uh, giddy up because that accrues that fifteen cents accrues to the unit holders. The mechanism we do that is that we have a model that looks at uh, what we think are the the peers that we should be most compared to, and we look at the discounts they trade on, and if we ever go to a certain amount, um, then we put on the buyback. And it came very close a month or two, a couple of months ago, uh, the buyback coming on, and we've got no hesitation to put it on when that when that happens. Right. So in your investment process, if I can go into that, how much do you feel 
you are like company specific and and how much do you factor in the sort of macro environment so if you're not thinking about the macro environment it's like trying to swim with an arm behind your back you're not going to be too successful so we're always thinking about the macro environment because that will drive the bottom up the bottom up of companies but we are bottom up investors so for us it's out getting out there seeing companies looking in the whites of whites of the eyes of the CEOs um speaking to as many people as possible and finding uh companies that are experiencing some change uh we really focus on the earnings of a company so if a, if a company is going through an accelerated um, accelerated growth you know, we'll really narrow in and try and identify why that is um but as i said the macro will drive certain elements of companies be it a retailer um it's you're going to do a pretty you're going to be pretty hard uh going if you're selling houses and interest rates are going up through the roof so right. you have to be you can't ignore that you one. can't ignore it yeah um but yeah we're really bottom-up investors and trying to do work that other people aren't to get an edge and work something out that the rest of the market hasn't on a company and so obviously the the rising interest rates and inflation and what that's done for the market has been one theme do you, do you feel there's a, a theme out there which has been dominating your thinking in the last year or so i've got so many themes dominating <laughs> my thinking i think probably the one that would be most interesting is u.s small caps are firmly in a bear market u.s large caps are trading mm. well above their historical averages yeah, and it's been magnificent led- seven in particular exactly the magnificent yeah. seven so for those who don't know the nvidia's metas uh, amazon alphabet apple um uh tesla i think yeah. i've forgotten one out yeah, of them microsoft, microsoft microsoft that's the seven um i think they're up 65 70 even more percent since the start of the year where you're not getting that participation across the rest of the share market the s p 500 um outside of that it's pedestrian what that's up but those big seven are actually driving the s p 500 if you then look at small caps they're trading uh the russell 2000 is trading at a, i think around 13 and a half times historic uh price to earnings multiple the average is about 18 and a half times so it's trading at a big discount the s p for reference trading at about 23 times so a big premium so the big i guess from our perspective is looking at that small caps and sort of just understanding that there's a lot priced in in a lot of these businesses um and to be patient and invest in the good businesses because the market will come back for them at uh, some point and there will be a lot of money to be made um and it's not a matter of if it's just when and we don't know the when part but this will be a time that we'll all look back at and say this was a great opportunity i'm not sure whether you could say that about the magnificent seven and i'm not all over nvidia it's obviously a fantastic business it just trades it think 25 times plus forward revenue revenue not profit that's right yeah, exactly so uh, that's not my expertise valuing a company like nvidia mm, yeah and you've also written i was i was going back looking at some of the articles you've written for first links you've also written about how in- investors are often their own worst enemy how have you seen that manifest itself well because i'm my own worst enemy as well and so you learn over time and we're always going through a self reflection 
process when the mistakes that we make and behavioral biases as an investor are something that we all have um and it's fine to have them but you have to acknowledge that you have them you got and, to know about work, them work yeah. them so when you see yourself doing it um you need to stop yourself and and think so confirmation bias is a big one for us we're always out on the road talking to people and the easiest thing to do is speak to someone who supports your investment yeah. thesis on a company and you're like well that person's obviously very smart i should put all my all my attention on what they said I, and then someone tells yeah. you something that's against it and you and then you discount them because they worked at i don't know anderson accounting firm yeah. 25 years ago i i find myself very often i realize i'm i'm reading the articles that confirm my view and you got to really watch for that and that's what and you know like that's what social media is does like all it all it does is try to put stuff mm. in front of you that you're going to you're going to want to read because it confirms your confirms your view which is a big big problem for all the confirmation bias on a big global global level so you know going out and and working on all your biases and identifying and there's lots of them and and what I'd suggest to um to people who are listening is to actually buy a book as uh there's many out there on behavioral biases I think I actually have a platinum uh, put out one platinum the asset management put out a little book on behavioral yeah, biases that yeah, I've got a little red book 10 behaviors I think it is yeah yeah like yeah that. and you know, like I've just got that just sitting down at, at, in my bedroom at home and just right. it's easy to easy just to flip book <laughs> with pictures um but just think about the investment the investment uh that you make and where you're committing these because these are each and every one of ours Achilles heels and we all have them it's fine don't don't be ashamed, but gee, a lot of people think that they invested and they made all this money out of NVIDIA because they're stock market geniuses. And I don't know, I speak to them about NVIDIA, these people, we've got investors and you know, I meet people who are invested in NVIDIA and they don't know much about the company at all. And I know that I know very, very little and I know more than them. So, right. you know, and I pick my battles and it's very easy to think you're a stock market genius when you've NVIDIA's just tripled for you, mm. but you know, maybe it's luck. Um, and, you know, it, yeah, we do tend to underestimate the role of luck in our portfolios, don't we? 100%. Okay, thanks very much, Andrew. Appreciate those ideas. Um, I've been speaking to Andrew, Andrew Mitchell, the founder and senior portfolio manager at Ophir. Thanks for coming in, Andrew. No, thanks very much for having me, Graham. Yeah, cheers. That was a Fear Asset Management founder and senior portfolio manager, Andrew Mitchell with Graham Hand. And that does it for this week's podcast. Feel free to leave any comments or feedback you may have on the podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed today, check out morningstar.com.au and our associated first links and your money weekly newsletters. We'll be back with another episode of Wealth of Experience in a Fortnight. A quick thanks to Will Tong for producing and editing this podcast. Bye for now and happy investing.